0: Well, we are starting a new series, I believe this will be a four-week series, and it's going to all be from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Now on, a, on the church calendar, and when I say church calendar, I guess I would say the organized church calendar, this Sunday starts a new season, actually a new year, a new church year. Uh, who can tell me what this season is called on the church calendar? Not our church calendar, the church calendar. Advent. Advent. Everybody hear of Advent? How many of you have heard of Advent? Okay, so we at least know a little bit about what we're talking about. Good. What does it mean? What's Advent about or supposed to be about? The word Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus. And it simply means, you know, anticipating the arrival of something. And in the case of the church and Christianity, when we talk about the Advent season, if you would, the time between now and Christmas in the official church calendar, it's the focus is supposed to be on anticipating the arrival of the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's what the Advent season is about. And the series that we're going to be doing here is called Among Us, a Christmas story Among Us. You can imagine We sang about it in the Christmas hymn that we sang this morning. And we're going to be looking at just the first five verses of the Gospel of John this morning. I want to talk a little bit about what we call the four Gospels, first of all. You know, it's really a fourfold Gospel more than it is four different Gospels. Everybody understands that. They go together. If you could lay them over one another there would be places, there are things that the Gospels uh, don't all include. They're not exactly the same. It's like four different perspectives or four different voices telling us about the ministry of Jesus Christ. We have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they are called the Synoptic Gospels, meaning they're very similar in their structure, the way they're put together. Once again, if you go through them, there are some differences. You won't find all the same teachings or all the same stories or all the same miracles necessarily in every one. But there are many, many, many things in common. Those three in particular, if you could lay them all side by side, you could see where to plug in all the different things that would fit according to the timeline. So they're written from four different perspectives, four different voices. And these three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, obviously those are the authors of those particular Gospels. Now, when it comes to John, it's a little bit different. The Gospel of John is not considered one of the synoptic Gospels, not one of them, because he writes it differently. And we're going to look at some differences between the four of them before we really get into the Gospel of John itself. Um, When I say synoptic Gospels, all that word synoptic basically means is to see them together. Look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see them together. It's really easy to see that they could be, they are one continuous story. And the way that they're written and what they're talking about. Their focus in those gospels is much more on what Jesus said, His teachings, and what Jesus did. His healing, His miracles, what, all of these things, the times He confronted people. When you look at those three gospels, you get a much better picture of what he said and what he did. Gospel of John is, again, a little different. Now, when I'm saying it's different, that doesn't mean there aren't some things that are similar to the other three Gospels. There certainly are. But not everything. The Gospel of John, according to historians, it looks like that was probably the last Gospel written of the four. And he may have very well had some understanding or knowledge of what the other three had written. We don't know. But what we do know is even though there's four different voices, four different men writing this, all four of them are under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Right? They are written, they are the Word of God, and they're trustworthy. So when we look at these and see the different focuses, I want to look at one, for example, of just the origin of Jesus according to what you see in the way each gospel is written. If you would open up Matthew, you don't have to do that, but if you would open it up, if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 1, Right away, it goes into this genealogy. And this genealogy has a point. The way Matthew was starting it, he's showing us that Jesus comes from Abraham. And he's a direct descendant of David. With the purpose probably being in mind this, to show the people that he is the Jewish nation's promised Messiah. He fits. The line of Abraham, the line of David the King of Jews, the Messiah. That's how he starts his gospel. And Mark, we see in uh, verse 9 of chapter 1, he tells us that Jesus came from Nazareth. Now, it's interesting if you look at that, uh, we often reference or refer to the fact that Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament that he was going to come from Nazareth. Well, the reality is there is no Old Testament prophecy saying he's going to come from Nazareth. There are other... Uh, There are Old Testament scriptures that point to that, but it doesn't say that specifically, but Mark makes a point of letting us know Jesus of Nazareth. He is coming from Nazareth, and also he's coming as a servant. A couple big issues, different than Matthew's, and that's Mark. And then when we get to Luke, Luke starts out, first of all, I'll I'll refer to this a little later, but first of all, telling you what he did. You know, sometimes we we might forget and think, well, these four Gospels are all written by four of the twelve disciples. How many of you know they're not, right? They're not, they weren't all disciples. We think that way, but they weren't. Matthew was a disciple. John, Mark, Dr. Luke not so much. So when we look at, at Luke, he goes into the third chapter, but then what he does is he gets into the genealogies again. Only this time, Luke goes back way further than Abraham. He tracks it back. If you look at Luke Luke chapter 3, and you look through the genealogies, and I know sometimes we just go, what do all these names mean? We can't repeat. We can't pronounce most of them. We're not familiar with most of them. But the reality is it takes it all the way back to Adam. The perfect man. Kind of setting the tone that Jesus Christ is the second Adam, the perfect man, before the fall. So we see these distinctions. And then in John chapter 1, he starts out different than all of them. He starts out by saying something that's crazy. He says, Jesus came from heaven, and he's God. Now that's quite a proclamation to be making And he comes right out of the gate, right off the bat, and that's his declaration. Now, when you look at the Gospel of John, you're going to see, as I said, he leaves out several uh, really pretty significant events in Jesus' ministry compared to the other synoptic Gospels. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll see nothing about the birth of Jesus. And, you know, the whole Advent season, we're kind of focusing towards the birth of Jesus. John doesn't even mention the birth of Jesus. He doesn't go there. He doesn't talk anything about his baptism, you know, being baptized by John the Baptist. doesn't mention it. He doesn't talk at all about the temptation when he was taken into the wilderness and tempted three times by Satan. He doesn't mention that. He doesn't tell stories about Jesus confronting demons. So you see, it's there's a lot of things that are really... Significant things, but they're, they're left out completely. Uh, the teaching in parables. You don't see in the Gospel of John Jesus teaching in parables like we see in the other Gospels. He doesn't even go there. And we don't see anything about what we just did. The Bible, we call it the Last Supper. John doesn't talk about the Last Supper. He does not talk about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane agony in the garden when he's praying to the Father. Father, if it be your will, could you remove this from me? Doesn't mention it. And he doesn't mention the ascension when Jesus ascended to heaven. So when you look at that, you think, wow, there's some pretty important stuff that he didn't talk about. What did he talk about? Well, there's some things that he mentioned that aren't in any other gospels. For example, We see in the Gospel of John the I am statements that Jesus himself declared. You may be familiar with them where Jesus said things like this. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No, I guess to the Father, I am. I am the true vine. Referred to as the seven I ams, and you can see the significance of every single one of them when it comes to identifying more who Jesus is. We could go into each one of them and make an amazing teaching about them of what that means and what it did, and very, and we can learn a great deal from it, but he is mostly focusing on this Jesus. This Jesus that came to earth, I want you to know who he is on a personal level, who he is. And he also tells us about different witnesses testifying about who Jesus was. Actually, in the first chapter of the book of John, there's four different people who testify who Jesus is. First one is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Remember the story about his disciples? Who is this? What are we doing? You know, who is this guy? Then we go into the scene when Jesus is beginning to call His disciples. We see three different ones almost just, well obviously they're all in chapter one, just in a few verses. We see Andrew getting exposed to Jesus. And he goes to his brother, Simon Peter, and he declares who He is. We've met Him. I've seen Him. I've met Him. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He testifies to who he is. And after Andrew hears this, we see Philip being called. And Philip then testifies to Nathaniel. And of course, Nathaniel's like, really? The Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? Nathaniel goes and comes to Jesus. And Jesus speaks to him. And he says, well, now I know who you are. You are the king of the kings. You are, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of God. So we see all of this quickly, four personal testimonies of who Jesus is, who Jesus is. His emphasis is on, I want you guys to know who he is. And if you can undermine who he is, you can undermine the Christian faith completely. John tells us also, The specific purpose for writing the gospel, if you would, well, it should be on the screen, I believe, John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. It's as simple, you know, you can read all this, I want you to know who he is, and here's why I want you to know who he is. Uh, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written about so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm writing this book that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is the Son of God, and that believing in Him, you may have life in His name. It's his purpose. I am writing this book. Everything that I've written so far, everything up to this point, has a goal as a purpose that you know exactly who Jesus is. And by believing in all of this, you can have eternal life. I mentioned how the Gospels begin. I just want to reiterate, Matthew starts with genealogies. Mark starts with Jesus just kind of bursting on the scene, getting baptized by John the Baptist. Luke begins with telling us how he went about putting together the book. He's he's like... Dr. Luke, probably the more, most educated of the bunch, he says, I've done my research. I've talked to all the people around this. We're first-hand witnesses. And I'm trying to write as accurate and detailed as I constantly can for you. He explains why he's writing it or how he came about to write this book. And then we have John. And we probably lose just how shocking these statements are because of who we are in the, the century we're living in, and we have the Bible. But he starts out by saying, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Can you see why there'd be accusations of blasphemy? Or you're, you're crazy. How can this be? And this is what we're going to look at today and focus on just in the first five verses of the Gospel of John. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and we'll be backing up a few times here, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When we look at those statements, he was in the beginning with God. John is making an assertion here, or a declaration here, that is kind of mind-boggling. To the natural mind, he's saying, this guy Jesus is God. He's eternal. In the beginning, or before what we call the beginning of creation, He existed. He was. He is eternal. He's been around. When there was nothing else, He was. And not only was He with God back there in the beginning, before anything was, He then says, he was god with god was god and we'll look at some significance to those two statements in just a minute in john 1:14 we get a clear answer to who this word is in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god who's the word john chapter 1 verse 14 tells us in, uh, in the beginning, excuse me, John one fourteen, and the Word became flesh. So whatever this entity was that preexisted the creation, who was with God at creation, whatever this entity was that is God, He became flesh to, to dwell among us. And we saw His glory. Glory is only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John there, whether you see it or not, he is very, very clearly saying this entity called the Word is divine. It is divinity. It is God. And knowing the Word that became flesh, we know that it's Jesus. So, looking at John verses one and two, the begin in the beginning, it's just. Our natural mind, we don't think about this. We just all take it for granted. We're so used to hearing this if we've been in a Christian walk for, for any length of time at all. But in the beginning, when there was nothing, when there was nothing, the Word spoke and let there be light. It was Jesus, the Word, creating all things. It eliminates this possibility, and I'm stressing a few of these things and we'll see it a little bit later, but just by tweaking a little bit or juggling words around way too much, taking way too much liberty, the divinity of God is undermined. The divinity of G- Jesus is um, tried to be undermined. That he is not divine. That he is not God. This statement alone makes it very, very clear to us the divinity of Jesus. Whatever else, you read or see, right here we know he is divine. He is eternal. He's been here before the beginning as we know it. The Word was the Word. That Word, this is kind of interesting too. The Word there is Logos. Logos, the Word. Now it's interesting, why would John, of all things, start the Gospel this way? Why didn't he just make it a lot easier for us to say, in the beginning was Jesus, or in the beginning was the Son of God, who was with God and is God, And instead of doing that, he says, he throws this this thing in there, this entity that I'm going to talk about, we're going to call him the Word. Why calling him the Word? Well, we need to remember and think about sometimes words were chosen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to make sense to the hearers in that time. And this word, Logos, or Logos, was a word that both the Jewish people and the Greek people would have been familiar with a matter of fact, Jewish rabbis, sometimes in referring to God the Father, they would just simply call him the Word or the Word of God instead of saying God the Father. They wouldn't speak, but they would call him the Word. So when he'd say this, the Jewish people would say, okay, the Word, okay, what's he talking about here? Now, the Greek philosophers, on the other hand, they also used that word logos. They believe that all things that were created started as a thought. And there was this unknown thing they called Logos. The thing that created everything and the thing that keeps it all in order so there's not chaos in all of creation. And it's like John is saying to them, both Jews and Greeks, you guys have been talking about the Word for years. You've written about the Word. You've taught about the Word. Let me tell you who the Word is. So all of a sudden, he's got the attention of the Greeks the Greek philosophers. He's got the attention of the Jewish rabbis. Whether they want to believe him or not is a whole other story. But he uses this word to really grab their attention so they would understand what he is talking about. I'm going to tell you who he is. And it's the beginning of the whole purpose of his letter, of his gospel. I want you all to know who he is. Because if we don't know and believe and understand who he is, most of what he did or even taught loses a lot of its impact or significance. Because if he's not really who he says he is, who cares? Anybody could have said and talked. would have been hard to do some of the miracles he did. But they could always have that. He's just a guy. He's a magician. He's a sorcerer. He's whatever. They could call him anything and everything they wanted to do. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. So we're still just in those first two verses. The Word was God, with God, and the Word was God. The entity, the Word, we now know Jesus. Jesus was with him. In a single verse, he declares the divinity of God, and he really sets forth or lays the foundation of a basic Christian doctrine called the Trinity, People would like to say, well, the Trinity is nowhere mentioned anywhere in Scripture, and that word's not anywhere in Scripture. Okay, we'll go with that. But here we have this entity, the Word, who preexisted creation, who was with God and was God. With God was God. He is God, but He's not necessarily all that God the Father was or is. And we have the Holy Spirit. So we've got God the Father, God the Word, God Jesus, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you try to follow John's logic, it goes something like this. There's this entity, there's this being, no one is the Word. And the Word, this being, is God because He's eternal, because He pre-existed. He is divine, He is eternal in the beginning. And He is also clearly called God. He was God and he is God. And his logic would continue. At the same time, being the Word doesn't totally encompass all that the Father is because he was with the Father. Setting himself a little bit apart in function or role. And he's distinct from the Word. The Word was with God. So the Word, Jesus, and the Father are one, but they're also separate. No, we can't comprehend that, our natural mind. I mean, take yourselves back in time to the time that the gospel is written and you're, whether you're Jew or Gentile, Greek, it doesn't matter. And you're trying to wrap your head around all this. Where would you go with that? To understand it, it's a totally different mindset. Except by the time John wrote this gospel, Jesus has been crucified, buried, resurrected and ascend it. There is evidence that it's true. And he's explaining that the world may know just exactly who this God, who this Jesus is. Now, I want to point out a couple of things and sharing with Alan, I don't know how, I don't want to sound like I'm attacking any religion, whether it's false or not. But I just think we need to understand how subtly the enemy can do things by just subtle changes in the way something's written in a different Bible than our Bible. The Jehovah Witness, New World Translation. You know, these Jehovah Witness, I'm going to mention the Mormons, they're considered Christian cults by those that look at truth and determine whether something's true or cultish. And there's a whole lot of things you could go into, but I'm not going to do that. I just want to show you, for example, John chapter 1, verse 1 in their Bible. And it reads like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Subtle. The Word was a God. Jesus was the first created being according to the Jehovah teachings. God created him. And because he then was given the power and the authority and the ability to create everything else, he was like God. Therefore, we can call him a God, which opens the door to all kinds of questions. Well, if he was a God, how many other gods are there? What are their qualifications to be one of their many? You know, it's just one little word, the way it's changed the way it's taught. And you could go further into the, the study and teaching of how they justify those things. You know, they'll go primarily to uh, Colossians 1, uh, verse 15, verse 16, where it talks, He was the firstborn of all creation. And they say, see? He was the firstborn of all creation. He was the first created. And that's not the meaning when you look at the context of that verse. It's saying that He is like the Father. He is like the Father. That's all supersedes everything else. But they change it. The the Mormons with the Joseph Smith translation. And here they Joseph Smith, I mean, if you just get a hold of a Mormon a Bible, a lot of their script it's like ours. But if you get a hold of the Book of Mormon, things get different. And Joseph Smith takes John chapter 1, verse 1, and here's where he goes with it. In the beginning was the gospel preached. The Son. Okay, so now he's trying to deal with the Word thing, right? It was the Gospel. Preach through the Son. And the Gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. Do you see the hoops that you have to jump through to make something fit? a false theology, something that is so plain and clear in our Bible. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Go to verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's crystal clear. And if you're going to start messing with scriptures and and the original language, because that's usually where it always goes, by the way, with any false teaching occultic teaching. That's why you need to be careful when your pastor stands up here. Well, this word really means this in the Greek, because I'm going to do that in just a little while. Really, a lot of these Greek words can have more than one meaning that's applied differently. And man, alive, if I go in there and just pick and choose every time I want, you can just about prove any point you want using the Greek or the Hebrew. So it's, it, it's easy and that's usually where these false teachings have to go to make it even remotely believable. So you can see there's just a couple of examples in what are considered by, in a lot of places, mainstream Christianity. And no matter what they change and the way they explain things, if you go back to their, their actual teachings, this is where you land. So who is he? Who is this word? Who is this Jesus? And John says, I want you to know, so there's no doubt in anyone's mind, who he is. And then he goes on and talks a little bit about the work and the nature of Jesus in the next couple of verses, starting in verse 3. All things came into being through him. There's some words there that, you know, you could get cute with, I guess, but all things, everything came into being through him. He created all things, meaning He was not the first created. He preexisted all things as a divine God. He says, created through Him and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. All things were made and created by Him. Therefore, He is an uncreated being. And if you remember and I'm going to read chapter uh, Colossians verses 16 and 17 from our Colossian study the previous weeks here, "For by him all things were created, both in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together." So when you look at the context and what G- who Jesus is according to John in his writings of his gospel, we have to come to some very, 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 very clear understanding of who Jesus is. And that's his goal. In hearing these things and knowing these things, that you may believe who he really is. And by believing in his name, believing in who he is, believing in his character, what he has done, you can have eternal life. Which give credence to Scripture. We say, you know, when he says... I am the way. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but me. Man alive, that can offend a whole lot of other religions. Makes us seem very intolerant and narrow-minded. There is only one way. It's through Jesus, who he is. Jesus is life and light. He said, I am the light. I'm reading for chapter 8, verse 12 right now. A little bit later, John says, Jesus said again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world and he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, will have the light of life. Paraphrasing just a little bit, without me, you're going to be walking in darkness and death. That's all there is to it. If you don't believe and accept who this Jesus is that I'm telling you about, you will be walking in darkness and death. That's it. Clear. And he goes on and says, the light shines and darkness did not comprehend it. This is one of those examples that I warned you I was going to do. What does the word comprehend mean to our way of thinking? When you first read that, light came into the world, but it didn't comprehend it. It didn't comprehend it. The shines and the darkness didn't comprehend it. it? Does that mean didn't understand it? Didn't get it? It could. Because this is one of those words in the Greek that about the third, fourth, fifth meaning of that word, it can have that meaning that we grasp hold of it with our mind and understand it. But the primary meanings of that word in the Greek are not that. They say, they mean means to lay a hold of, take possession of, to seize. When you look at that word there, a better way I would suggest to to translate it instead of comprehend is overcome. Why? What's so significant about that? The darkness cannot overcome it. The darkness cannot defeat it. The darkness cannot seize it. This Jesus... This divine being, this eternal being cannot be overcome by darkness. The devil has no way to defeat him, to overcome him. Cannot overcome it. When you look at these five verses, John answers a question that every single one of us have to answer. And you may remember, excuse me, you remember, may remember in Matthew 16, verse 15 and 16 are going to be on the screen, but just preceding that, Jesus has asked his disciples this question. Who do the people say that I am? And they said things like, John the Baptist. And you think about their answers. They already acquired something miraculous, right? John the Baptist, who was beheaded. Uh, that's what they say you are. Um, Elijah, that's who they say you are, who's been gone for a long, long time. Maybe Jeremiah, another prophet, long dead. Or another one of the prophets. So they're, they're saying, this is what the people are saying. So if Jesus would say to us here today, who do you say I am? Well, that's when he gets around to verse 15 here, or 16. And he says, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God. All of those other people, that's not who I am. None of them. He is truly God, and he entered the world, took on flesh, became a man, while re- by, 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 at the same time remaining all God. He walked a sinless life on this earth, and he went to the cross and died for our sins. He took the wrath of the Father on Himself to pay the penalty for our sins that would make a way through His burial and resurrection for our sins to be able to be truly forgiven. Truly forgiven. Not just covered up. Not just put off some. Truly forgiven. If He is not God, if He was not God, if He was not that eternal being, if He is not divine... None of that works, but he is truly. That's what makes these five verses so relevant for us today. As we look towards Christmas, as we look towards this Advent, as we look forward to what we call the incarnation, God becoming man, God taking on flesh, we all, you all, I have to answer that question. Who do you believe him to be? Who do you say he is? And if you come up with an answer that's any other than he is Jesus, the Son of God who came to earth to walk a path to the cross to pay for my sins, you're wrong. And he says the only way that you can have eternal life in my presence with God is by believing who he is and what he's done. That's the only way. I'd asked Olivia if we could sing, Oh, come all ye faithful this morning. You know, sometimes we get used to so many different things, whether it's reading a scripture or singing a song. There's some theology that we miss completely. The last verse of the song we sang today was, were these words. The word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore him. Right out of John chapter 1. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we need your Holy Spirit, your grace, to understand something like this. Our natural minds fall short. That you are God. That Jesus, the Son, is also God. And the Holy Spirit is also God. Yet... They are different. Father, we thank you for the revelation we can receive from John's writings. We thank you that he makes clear who Jesus is. And we thank you that even today, nearly 2,000 years after these words were penned, the truth remains that if we understand and know who he is and what he has done, and we believe it by faith, By your grace, we are saved. I pray, Lord, that there would be no one in this room who has still not made that decision, trusted their eternity with Jesus, acknowledging not only who he is and what he's done, but who, did he, who it is that he did these things for that he did it for us, that he loves us. No one, no one is out of reach of his salvation simply by believing by grace through faith that Jesus Christ died for their sins, was raised from the dead, proving to all that his sacrifice was sufficient, making forgiveness available to all of us by us accepting and receiving that gift and surrendering our lives to him, we can spend eternity with you. What an amazing story. I pray, God, that we would stay focused in the busyness of this next month and what it is we're really looking at, looking forward to. That we're looking at the birth of a Savior who came to this earth. Father, I pray that as we go about the next many days this month, we will have so many opportunities because of the season that it is to share the good news of the hope that's within us, where we can find joy in the midst of circumstances that would not seem joyful, that we can have peace in a world that is in chaos in so many ways. I pray you would give us great wisdom and a boldness to articulate these truths in love, that more may know the good news of the gospel. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.